Today we are concluding our series called Loving Your One. And if this is your first time here, I'm going to do a little bit of recap, but I also want to just welcome you to service with us today. Thank you so much for investing some of your time with us. Through this series, we've been talking about how we can go and love the lost one in our lives. That's who the one is that we're talking about, the lost person. That might be ourselves might be our neighbors or our enemies or family members or friends or whoever it is, God has called us to go and show them his love. It's because that's something that's close to God's heart. That's what Jesus was about when he was on this earth. It's what new life has been about and will always be about. And that's why, although this is the end of our series called Loving Your One, it's not the end of our emphasis on Loving Your One. We're always going to be about this. But today, as we bring the series to a close, we're going to be talking about loving the unloved in your life. Maybe that's you. Maybe you don't feel very loved. Maybe because something that you've done or something that has been done to you or maybe just the way that you live or look or whatever it is, or maybe it's someone in your mind that you're thinking of that society just condemns, or maybe we look down upon them. Maybe we think less of them because of what they they look like or what they do, how they act, how they talk. Well, I'm here today to tell you that Jesus doesn't only love people who have it all together. He loves the unloved as well. He came for everyone to have an opportunity to come to know him as Lord and Savior. I was excited to be able to speak on this topic because I grew up feeling this way, feeling very unloved. You see, my family wasn't stable. My decisions weren't godly. My trajectory wasn't very good. I was a very awkward kid. I got made fun of a lot in junior high, senior high, the way that I walked and and talked and looked. And I took those insults and I internalized them, got angry, and then I poured them back out to people. Wasn't a good way to act. I was treated bad, and so I treated other people bad. And I lived that way for a long time until I met some people who showed me the love of Jesus. A couple weeks ago, I was on a plane on the way home from Israel, and I got to sit next to a Jewish rabbi for 12 hours. And I thought it was kind of funny. It's like the beginning of a joke, like a a pastor and a rabbi sitting next to each other on a plane. You think, like, what are the odds of that? And I guess they're probably pretty good coming from Israel to the United States. But we got to know each other. We actually became friends during our trip. I actually got his name in in my contact information. I couldn't remember his name after like the first three times he said it. And that happens sometimes. So I did the good trick of like, can you type in your information here? So, and then could you spell your name for me? And that works like almost all the time unless their name is like Dan. Then you're like, ah, oh, I thought it was two A's. Uh, but his name is Shraggy. So Shraggy. I, I kept thinking in my head, Shaggy? Like, no, 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 not Shaggy. Like maybe uh, from Scooby-Doo, but no, no, it was Shraggy. And so Shraggy and me became friends. And after I got off the plane, my wife was asking me, hey, how was a stranger that you had to sit next to for 12 hours? And he said, you want to see our selfie that we took together? So uh, we, 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 we got along really well. He's three years older than me. We both have families. We talked about that. We talked about Christianity, Judaism, the differences there. I talked about Jesus. We, we talked about how we minister in our own areas. And I got to tell them telling my story, my testimony, which is simply how I came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. I talked to him about what I shared with you, how I was growing up, and how 
I was invited to a youth group, and I got to see the love of Jesus firsthand through men and women who love Jesus. And I got to experience his love in such a way that I wanted to follow Jesus. And I gave my life over to Jesus, and then my life changed. And I talked to him about how I became a pastor and how I'm becoming the next lead pastor at New Life. And I got done telling it, and he just kept shaking his head. And I wasn't afraid at any point during the, the flight to ask him questions. There was even one question where there was a lady sitting next to me at the very beginning, and she as soon as I sat down, acted like I like repulsed her. I don't know. Like I kept being like, <sighs> like no, like nah, maybe. And and she was just like leaning. And eventually, in Hebrew, like was talking to people and switched. She at one point said, "It's not you." And I was like, it's, "It feels like it's me." And and then she left, and Shragan came over, and I was like, "Okay, what gives? Like why did she?" like hate me. And he's like, no, no, no. She just takes the law very serious where she's a married woman, doesn't want to touch a married man. And on a plane, you can't really not like rub elbows a little bit. And so she left. So I wasn't afraid to ask him any sort of question. And so I was asking, why are you shaking your head after I told you the story? And he said, I just can't believe it. I can't believe that you're a Christian. I can't believe that you're a pastor. And I said, I'm with you. Like I absolutely understand. You see, for him, and the way he grew up, he grew up as a Jew. He was born into that family, into that community. No choice there. He's a Jew. That's what he is. And for me, he said, how did, how did you make those decisions that come there? I said, it was only because of the love of Jesus. I, I met Jesus, and I saw Jesus and his love through people in my life. So I wanted to trust him as my Lord and Savior. And I pray the same happens someday for Shraggy. And I tell you all of that, because as we talk about Jesus, I want you to know, and this is our take-home point. So one point the message is all about. It's simple today. It just says, Jesus loves the unlovable. Jesus loves the unlovable today. He loves you no matter what you feel about yourself. He loves you. And he loved the unlovable 2,000 years ago on this earth. And so what we're going to do today was we're just going to look at some encounters Jesus had with people while he walked on this earth. And as we read these stories and we talk about Jesus and what he did, I want to encourage you to put yourself in that situation as Jesus or as the unlovable person or as the crowd that's simply watching these radical things that Jesus did happen. But before we get into God's word, let us pray. Dear God, I thank you for who you are and I thank you for loving us. I pray that right now that you will speak to our hearts your words. Pray that you will remove distractions from, from our minds, from around us, and allow it just to be you speaking clearly. I pray that you get me out of the way and just have your Holy Spirit speak whatever you want to today. Bring to mind people in our lives that are unlovable, deemed unlovable by other people, where they think they're unlovable, but they're really not because you love them. And help us to leave this place with an attitude and a willingness to love them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first story we're going to talk about is early in Jesus' ministry. He shows up to Nazareth, which is where he grew up. He goes into a synagogue, which is where the Jewish people would go to, to pray and to hear someone speak on the word of God. And he's handed a scroll and he reads it. So let's start. It's in Luke chapter 4. We're going to read four through 20, or 16 through 27, but we're just going to start with 16 and 17 right now. When he, meaning Jesus, came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. So to understand what's happening here, we should understand a little bit of not only the culture, but what Jesus has done up to this point. So far, he grew up, like most of us do, and then he went and was baptized by his cousin John. Then he was tempted in the wilderness. He fasted for 40 days. 
After that, he did some miracles, and now he's showing up to really let people know that his ministry is started, that he's about to do what God has called him to do. So this is kind of one of his first declarations, public declarations outside of his baptism, that he is who he says he is, that he's the son of God that God sent to save all the people. And mind you, all the people, all the Jewish people at this point were waiting for the Messiah. They had heard that someday God was sending a savior. That's when, what they talked about with the Messiah, someone to save them and save their nation. So they were longing, they were waiting for him. And Jesus is about to tell them he has come. And he's going to do that by reading from the book of Isaiah. So they're handing him a scroll. It comes from the book of Isaiah, which is a prophetic book, which Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus came, talked about Jesus and how he was going to come. So this is what Jesus reads. It's starting in verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free. And at the time of the Lord's favor has come, he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Now, I've always thought that this was like a mic drop moment. Like, he reads it, he sits down, and everyone's like, what? And that's partly true, but also in that culture, that's what a rabbi would do. He would teach by reading and then sitting down and teaching. So what Jesus is doing right here is taking the position of a rabbi. He's saying, I'm a Jewish religious leader, I'm going to teach. And he picks a prophetic word to teach from, which had to have everyone's ears. Because again, they were waiting for the Messiah. So like, okay, he's reading from Isaiah. What is he going to say about the coming Messiah? But there's another reason that they're staring intently. Not only did Jesus claim to be a rabbi in this moment, and he read this powerful passage, but they would have noticed that he omitted a verse from Isaiah whenever he was reading. They would have known this because young Jewish kids would be raised to memorize the Old Testament. They do that even today. When I was talking to Shraggy, I was so surprised that he kept quoting verses from God's word in Hebrew, and then he would translate them into English. People are so trained that way. So the Jewish people would have known what Jesus just, as soon as he started reading it, they would have been like, oh, okay, this is about the Messiah. They would also know that where they knew that Jesus omitted a part of what he read. He left out half a verse, and it's an important one. It says this in Isaiah 61, 2, and 2b, rather. And with it, the day of God's anger against their enemies. The Jewish people, again, were waiting for the Messiah to do what? To save them? Not necessarily from their sins, as that's what God was going to do, but they were thinking that the Messiah was going to come and save them from a nation of people. They thought that the Romans were oppressing them and God was going to come in human form to free them from the oppression of people. That God was going to come in human form and be this commander of an army and take over and put the Jewish people, the Israelites, on top of the world again. But this is simply a misunderstanding of who God is. He loves people, but he hates sin. His attack wasn't going to be against people, but his war was going to be against the sin that pulls people from God. And so Jesus makes sure to say that the captives are going to be set free. People are going to be healed, but he leaves this part out because their understanding wasn't correct. He wanted to make sure that they knew that Jesus had come to bring his love and forgiveness and freedom 
to the world. So they're staring at him intently, and then he continues, and this is his teaching now in verse 21. Then he began to speak to them, the scripture you just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. So already he said, the scripture has been fulfilled this day. What he's saying is the Messiah has come. I am God in human form. I am Jesus, the son of God that was foretold, I am here. This is a humongous, big statement. But they, they spoke well of him after he said that. And then it says, how can this be, they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said, you undoubtedly quote me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself, meaning do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth. No prophet is accepted in his own hometown. Certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha, but the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. So Jesus starts his ministry by declaring that he is the son of God and then makes another very important point that he has come for everyone. How does he make that point? By talking about two stories that happened in the past of God's people with two famous prophets and how they interacted not with the Jewish nation, but with outsiders. You gotta understand, the Jewish people looked at the outsiders as Gentiles. They looked at them as unclean, as people that God wasn't here for They looked down on the people that were outside of their community. And so Jesus bringing up these two stories was pretty radical. What he was saying is he was reminding them that this is how God has always been. He isn't just for a small group of people. He is for everyone. He wants everyone to come and know him as Lord and Savior. And so he talks about Elijah, a prophet who during a famine went outside of God's people and a widow came to him and said, my son has died. And so Elijah cries out to God and says, God, please heal this boy. And this boy was brought back to life by the power and love of God. He also shares about Elisha, how there's this man, Naaman. Naaman was a commander of enemy armies. He took captives, he took slaves from God's people. But he also had leprosy. He had leprosy, which is this disease that would just take apart your body. People were afraid to go near lepers. They were afraid that they would get this disease. And one day, a Jewish slave of his said, well, God can heal you. So he goes to Elijah the prophet and asks to be healed. And Elijah says, we've got to humble yourself before God if you're going to be healed. He points to a dirty body of water and says, you've got to go in there and wash. That's what God wants. And Naaman almost doesn't do it in his pride. But eventually he goes and he bathes in there and then he's healed and God healed him. So Jesus is reminding the people, God hasn't only done good works for the Jewish people. He's continued to stretch outside of his people because he wants others to know Well, he wants others to know God, but now he wants others to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And the people that were hearing this got angry. They did not like this because they were changing their way of thinking. They had a category of people that they thought were unloved, and now Jesus was saying, no more of that. They are loved by me as well. They got so mad, actually, that they took Jesus and they almost threw him off a cliff. But Jesus walked calmly through them and continued his ministry. The way that Jesus changed their thinking is the way that Jesus wants us to change our thinking as well. You see, Jesus wants everyone in our lives, no matter what they've done or how we see them, to experience a relationship with him. Everyone in our lives. I know there's some people we've counted out and said, now they're never coming to Jesus. They're too far away. They've said too many things. They've done too many things. I don't even want them in my life anymore. 
But we look at those people and say, well, Jesus wants them in a relationship with him. He's come. He died for their sins as well. And he wants to bring them into his family. So Jesus leaves Nazareth and he continues his ministry. And one time as he was in Jerusalem, he was in the temple. And as he was in the temple, people started to notice him and they came, a crowd came to him and asked him to teach, which is a pretty big deal to be teaching in the the temple in Jerusalem. So this crowd came, he's teaching, and then all of a sudden he's interrupted. Imagine if like right now through those doors, people came in and they were dragging someone up on the stage and said, this person has sinned. What do you want to do about it? That's literally what happened. Jesus is teaching in the temple and some Pharisees, people that were leading the religious sect of Judaism came in and they dragged a woman up in front of Jesus and said, she has committed adultery. What are we going to do? And Jesus Responds. Let's see how he interacts with them. So in John 8, 4 through 7, it says, Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. So you might be thinking, well, where's the man at? And how did they see this occurring? What were they doing to, to watch her be able to, to do this? Like, what, what put them in that position? Jesus could have asked those questions, but instead, he quoted God's word to them. You see, what they were talking about is there's a passage of God's word that says you must purge the evil from among you. And so they're saying, hey, should we purge the evil from among us? She has done this awful thing. I mean, they're putting this target. They're shaming her. They're making her like as bad as possible. Should we kill her right here in front of people at the temple? And Jesus reminds them that there's evil inside them as well. He says, purge the evil from among you. Do you guys have any evil? Because we could do that. We could be about purging today if you really want to get the evil out of this area. And instead, they start to leave. Let's see what happens. So John 8, 8 through 11, then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. And I love this. There could be a very good reason why Jesus was writing in the dust, but I just love the image of that, that he's probably, I don't know, writing something. And we can ask Jesus when we get to heaven, maybe he was drawing a bird, but whatever it was, he's sitting there and he's drawing and the people are like, oh, what do we do? Uh, Okay. So when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Jesus does something amazing in this moment, a couple amazing things. The first thing is he addressed this woman. You see, when they brought her in front of everyone, and when I say everyone, I I mean like the men of that time, because generally in the temple, the men worshiped in this area, the women worshiped in this area. So they would have dragged her in front of a group of guys who are now all watching. And they said, she has committed adultery, putting the scarlet letter on her that would remain because as Jewish people would continue on their lives, they would make sure not to address her or talk to her because they wouldn't want people to think, oh, maybe something going on there with that Jewish man and the adulterous woman. They're shaming her and that's gonna be with her. And so Jesus does a radical thing by addressing her, by loving her so much that he talks directly to her. And he doesn't see her as her sin's are, but he sees her as the child that he has created and wants to know him as Lord and Savior. And then he says he doesn't condemn her, but what does he say after that? Go and sin no more. What a loving thing to do. You see, Jesus does love us. He loves us so much no matter what we've done, 
but he also doesn't desire for us to stay in our sins. He doesn't want us to stay in our sins. Why? Because he loves us. Because he knows that our sins keep us from a perfect relationship with Jesus. So he says, not only I love you, but he says, go and sin no more. Leave that stuff behind so that you can know life as it's truly meant to be lived. So you can know me in the fullest. And he says this to this woman. And can you imagine the reaction of her and the crowd? Later on, Jesus one time was in a boat. He was with his disciples, and they go to the land of the Gerasenes. And when they get there, you're going to notice that Jesus gets out of the boat, but doesn't write that anyone else does. And this is because the land of the Gerasenes is a Gentile land, again, a non-Jewish land. And they had a saying back in those days that even if the shadow of a Gentile fell upon you, you became unclean for a whole day. And so if you were unclean for a whole day, you had to go away from the society to do some rituals to get clean to come on back. So think about that. The Jews thought so lowly of other people. They're like, oh, they're so unclean that even if their shadow went on me, I was unclean. So the disciples didn't get out of the boat. And I don't know if they didn't get out of the boat because their fear of being unclean or because Jesus was kind and said, you guys stay here. But I do know that Jesus gets out of the boat. He doesn't care about that unclean stuff because he makes the unclean clean. So he gets out of the boat and starts walking and encounters someone. Let's see what happens. It's in Mark chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 1. So they arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night, he wandered among the burial caves in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. Talk about being unloved. This is like the kid that sits alone at lunch times a thousand. This guy was cast out from his society and put in a cave. And it looks like the only human interaction he probably had was when someone came to give him new shackles to tie him up again to allow him to get angry and break them. Could you imagine the pain that he was dealing with? The isolation from the society, but not only that, but the demonic possession he was under, the pain in his, in his whole being, so much so that he's howling and he's cutting himself. And what are people doing? They're not coming to help him. They're going and probably leaving him alone, but not Jesus. Jesus gets out of the boat and he walks directly towards this guy. He knew that something was about to happen. Mark 6, 5, 6 through 13 continues. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. With a shriek, he screamed, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, what is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. So what is this telling us? It's telling us first that it is definitely a Gentile land. There wouldn't be pig farmers in the Jewish community. So it's definitely somewhere that, that is a Gentile place. So Jesus is in this situation. 
And then he also shows love and healing. He talked in Nazareth about how he was going to set the captives free, and he's setting the captives free right here. The cool thing is Jesus does the same thing with us in our sins. The sins that hold us captive, he wants to set us free as well. So he shows his amazing love, and then the people react. Starting in verse 14, the herdsmen fled to the nearby towns and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what, had ha- what happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs. And the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, no. Go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. So the man started off to visit the 10 towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. Very quickly, Jesus told him who he was. He said he was the Lord. He said very clearly, I am God. Go and tell people. Go and do that. So Jesus showed him this love, which is radical, countercultural, supernatural. He did all of these things for this young man. And then he says, go and share your story. Why? Because when Jesus changed our life, there's nothing more powerful than our stories. Because when people hear from us and they they hear what Jesus has done, they can't refute that. I've been in conversations with people where I've told them all the facts that point to why this world was created. It was created by God. I've told people all the facts of why Jesus not only existed, but how he is the son of God. And some people can go, I don't know, I don't want to believe that. But then whenever you tell them your story and how Jesus has changed your life, they can't refute that because it's what has happened to you and what Jesus has done. And so Jesus knows this, so he wants this man to share his testimony, his story of how Jesus changed his life with all those people around him. And he wants the same for us. You see, God can and wants to use our testimonies to draw those in our lives close to Jesus. He wants to use your story. And how Jesus has forgiven you. If you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, he wants to use you for his good and his purpose. And he wanted to do the same thing with this young man. He knew that this young man had lost ones in his life that were not going to be reached by even his disciples. His disciples didn't want to go into this land. And so Jesus knew that you could come with me but I need you to go to these towns. And what does he do? He goes to 10 towns. He goes to all the surrounding villages and and tells people about the Lord and what Jesus has done, about the Messiah who has come. When we were in Israel, we got to go and see the cliff where these pigs fell off of. And why do they know that this is the cliff? Well, there's not very many cliffs in the area of the Gerasenes that overlook the the Sea of Galilee. So they're like, well, this is probably the one uh, where the pigs went off because the pigs could have went right into the water here. Right behind that cliff, there's Mount Hippos. We went up Mount Hippos, and on top of there, there's a ruined city. It used to be the city on a hill, but now archaeologists are are digging it up. And as they're digging it up, they found a Christian church right in the smack dab middle of Mount Hippos. In the land of the Gentiles, far from God's people, there's a church that used to be there where people came and worshiped God. And now we don't know if this man that was even possessed started this church or told someone who started this church, but we do know that God got his message to this land through this young man, through what Jesus did, loving the unlovable, because that's who Jesus came to love, all of us, including the unlovable 
There's always these instances in God's word about him loving lepers. And, and I just wanted to share that with you as the last story about what Jesus did on this earth. And again, you could go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and see plenty of stories how Jesus loved the unlevel. But, but I always am surprised with his love for the lepers. Again, we talked about it with name and leprosy, this disease that just disintegrated your body, really took away your skin. No one wanted to come near a leper. They didn't want to touch the leper because they would be afraid that they were going to get leprosy. So what the law instituted was that if you had leprosy, you had to walk around and say, unclean, unclean. Literally, you had to shame yourself by letting people know about your disease, but not only having it, but by screaming it out and telling people. And this was so that people wouldn't come near you. So people wouldn't talk to you, people wouldn't touch you. You were not even human at that point. You're like a subsection of humanity. People regarded you as less than. But Jesus on this earth made sure to go and talk to the lepers. Not only did he talk to lepers, but he healed them. And then in some instances, he even touched them. Jesus doesn't need to touch anyone to heal them. He has supernatural power, but he did that to show them kindness and love. Could you imagine having leprosy, not having physical touch for years, and then suddenly the Son of God puts his hand on your shoulder and you are healed. What amazing love that he has. He wanted to make people clean and give them a new life, and he wants to do the same thing with us today as well. He wants you and me to be clean, to have our sins removed so that we can enjoy the new life that he has for us. And then once we come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, what does he want us to do? He wants us to show that same love with those around us. We know that because the Apostle Paul, someone that, again, people probably deemed unlevel because he was going around jailing, killing Christians, interacted with Jesus, changed his life, and then wrote this letter to the church in Philippi. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Think of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Listen to this verse, verse 5. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. That verse 5, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. What a powerful way to think about our lives. I'm so thankful that my youth pastor, Jamie Kendrew, growing up, had that love for me. When I was a thorn in his side, him and the other leaders at that time showed me the love of Jesus. Years after I trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, I was at the lunch with Jamie, and he told me, man, it was hard to love you when you first started coming to youth group. And that makes you feel all like warm and fuzzy, you know? And he said he would, he would have rather kicked me down the stairs someday because I was starting fights and I was being rude and disagreeable. And he said, but we loved you because Jesus loved us first. And he just shared the, the love that Jesus has for us and we're called to do the same thing. So who is unlovable in your life? Maybe it is yourself. Maybe you don't see yourself as lovable and God said, you gotta change that thinking because he came and died for you. Maybe it's your neighbor or someone in your family or at work, someone that's living in a way that you don't approve. And again, we don't approve the sin. Jesus said, go and sin no more, but we can still show people the love of Jesus. And if we want to do that, we can do that through this next step, which says, I will seek out someone unlovable and show them kindness this week. To end our message, but also to really end our series, I wanted to give us three helpful tools of how do we love 
and identify the ones in our lives. Not just the unlovable ones, but how can we love our neighbors, our enemies, our friends, our coworkers? How do we find the ones and love them? So these are three helpful tools. We're going to put them on the screen, and I want to encourage you, if you don't have an outline with you, which you can take one as you leave, but if you don't, you can take these notes. I encourage you to maybe take a picture of it if you want to. There are three things that we can apply literally every day going forward. The first one is this. we got to see people as God sees them. And to do this, we need to literally ask God for help. God, give us your eyes to see people as you see them. Help me to see people as Jesus saw the adulterous woman, where he didn't see her sins, but he saw the child that he created. This isn't easy, but God will give us a supernatural ability to see through people's actions or appearances into their hearts. Second thing, we don't fill our schedule so full because this takes time. If we don't have margin in our lives, this won't happen. This won't miraculous happen because we want to. If right now we're like, all right, we're going to love the, the one in our lives, but we don't plan for it, it won't happen. So we got to create margin. How do we do that? By saying no to certain things. We got to say no to bad things and sometimes good things to say yes to the best things. Because remember, if, if we say yes to something, it's saying no to like a thousand other things because we're filling our schedule with that. And if our schedule is so full, we're going to get to the end of our day. We're going to be so exhausted. We can't seek out the one to show them love. If we're so full of with our weeks, when we get to the weekend, we're going to be so exhausted. We're not going to plan time to meet our neighbors and to love our enemies. So let's say no to some things to say yes to the greater things. Let's look at Jesus. I mean, when he went places, he never was like, hey, I, I can't heal you. I'm busy. I got to go to this place. Instead, he always stopped and he talked and he addressed people and he showed them love and healing. Let's have that same patience. Let's not be in a rush. The last thing, we got to accept the truth that loving your one is worth it. Listen, even when it's inconvenient and you don't see the results, it's not always going to be convenient. Let me encourage you. Whenever I was going to youth ministry, it, it can be easy to think, look, oh, I went there once or twice and I accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. I was going for two years before I trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior. It took a long time for me to finally hear the message. I mean, people were talking it, but I didn't actually hear it. My one professor at college used to always say that it takes seven conversations with someone for them to trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that doesn't mean with the same person, that I could talk to them and Pastor Chris could then talk to them, and that's two. And maybe when we are interacting with a lost one in our life, we're number four. Maybe we're five, we wanna be seven. But God is using what we're doing because that's how he works. We can be planting seeds and God can be using it. We don't always see the results, but we can trust that Jesus is gonna move in those times. So even when it's convenient, inconvenient, let's love the ones in our lives. Maybe today you are here and you're saying, this might be the seventh time I've heard it and I'm ready. Maybe you've never trusted in Jesus, Lord and Savior, but you want your sins removed. You want those shackles taken away. You wanna be free from what has been holding you back. Well, thankfully, Jesus said this is as simple as, as ABC. Well, we say it as simple. Jesus said it was pretty simple. And then we take it and say ABC. A meaning we admit that we're sinners, that we fall short of God's perfect standard, that we need him as our savior, as our rescuer from sin and death, and our Lord, our master, our owner, our God. And we believe, we believe in Jesus as both Lord and savior. And then we confess, we confess our sins. We ask for forgiveness. And we ask Jesus to fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we live this life not alone, but with the power of God. Right now, we're going to say a prayer and I'm going to lead us. And if you've never trusted in Jesus, Lord and Savior, I encourage you to pray this prayer alongside me, but use your own words and your own heart and your mind. Let us pray. 
Dear God, I thank you for being here today. I thank you so much for loving us. Even when we do stupid things and we don't deserve it, you love us. But right now, for those who don't know you as Lord and Savior yet, I pray that you'll hear their prayers as they say, Dear God, I believe you are the one true God, that your son Jesus came to this earth, died and rose again for me. I admit that I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sins and create in me a new creation. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me to live with you every day. I pray this in Jesus' name. And dear God, I pray that all of us daily would just reaffirm that we believe you are the God of the universe, that your son came and died for us and we'll live like that is true. We'll live like that matters because it does. Because you have changed our lives. You've given us new hope. And I pray that others will see that in our lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.